Well, the phone lines are open, and I am ready. Let's do this. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, as always, special excitement and joy being on the radio with you on Fridays. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-348-7884. The earlier in the program you call in, the better chance we have of getting to your calls. I always hate when we have folks that are calling and they're on hold for a while and we're unable to get to the call, but we do our best to get to as many calls as we can in the most quality way that we can. Now, I've always got stuff to talk about, always got stuff on my heart, on my mind. But on a Friday, I come in without an agenda. I come in without a lot of news items to talk about. I come in without a lot of scripture topics to talk about because the show is led by your calls, which means if it happens to be a day like a first on a Friday when instead of the uh, phone lines being jammed. Nobody calls in for some reason. Let's say there's a freeze on phone calls around America. We'll, we'll just open the word and talk about a million different things of interest. But this is for you. 866-348-7884. Before we go to the phones, I was in prayer early this afternoon. And I, I just said, Lord, if you could say one thing to all of America today, what would it be? Now, of course, it's a big question. And of course, God speaks in many different ways at the same time. And is it the Church of America? Is it the world? Is it hurting people? Is it arrogant people? I mean, there, there are a million different audiences or tens of millions of different audiences. And I wasn't presumptuous enough to think that I was going to have the message. But I was just praying, what, what word from Scripture would you speak? And of course, God's word is always relevant. God's word is always now. But I was struck by this verse from the words of Jesus in Luke 13. And this was immediately what came to mind as I prayed. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. A sobering word today when we have preached such a soft gospel for so long. I just filled out a questionnaire, responded to a lengthy email from a major ministry in, in Hungary, the largest megachurch in all of Europe, a very influential ministry there in Hungary that I've worked with over the years. And they had a bunch of questions for me about President Trump, about the political scene in America, etc. And they asked me about cultural issues and the church's voice on homosexuality and reaching out to those who are hurting. And I said, look, this is the culmination of decades of a soft, compromised gospel where churches were afraid to address controversial issues or were more concerned with offending people than offending God. That's why we're in the crisis we're in today. The good news is the gospel is still the answer. The bad news is we've dug ourselves a pretty deep hole. 866-34-TRUTH, 
and we go straight to the phones with John in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you on the Deuterocanonical books and like mm-hmm. the Catholic Bible, are they valid or invalid books? Like uh, Holy Spirit inspired? Right. Or, so uh, my understanding, and you would call it a historic Protestant understanding or traditional Jewish understanding, is that these books are of great value. They're edifying. There's often important history in them or spiritual insights, but they are not to be taken on a par with Scripture. Now, the Catholic argument would be this, that the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures done before the, uh, the time of Jesus, so this was by the Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, that the Septuagint also includes these various books, the, what we would call the apocryphal or deutero-canonical books. And they would claim that there are allusions to these books or references to these books on some level in the New Testament itself, and that the Church Fathers recognized these books as Scripture as well, and that even at the time of the Reformation, they would be printed in between the Old and New Testament in, in Protestant Bibles, but they were simply not used for public preaching or teaching, etc. Uh, my answer to that would be that there is not a single reference ever in the New Testament to any apocryphal book as Scripture. Nowhere is it ever quoted as the Word of God, as Scripture, uh, under no circumstances. And that from all reports that we have, when the Jewish community was agreeing on the canon of Scripture for the Old Testament, not long after the time of Jesus, that they only recognized the same books that we have as the Old Testament books. So I would encourage folks to read them as somewhere in between a really good book and the Bible, but absolutely not on a par with Scripture, not divinely inspired in the same way, and not the place where we go for our doctrine. Okay, okay, thank you so much. Yeah, but certainly they, they shouldn't be avoided as if there's something wrong with them. Like I said, they're, they're on a plane somewhere between a really good book and the Bible, but absolutely not the Bible. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Nathan in Kansas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Yeah, um, I recently visited a church, and uh, they were talking about the book of Job, and he had said that where it says that when Job said God gives and takes away, um, mm-hmm. he said that Job didn't have right theology when he said that because the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and God doesn't take away mm-hmm. like that. And so I've never heard that interpretation. Um, I didn't know your thoughts on it or maybe some good resources on maybe sure. a proper view of Job. Sure. So um, if it was a year from now, I would tell you to get my Job commentary which is due out late, late October of, uh, of next year. In fact, it would have been out by now, but we did a complete rewrite of it to make it more accessible to a popular audience so that it wouldn't get bogged down just in, in academic circles. So that perspective that you heard from this pastor, you would hear that in Word of Faith churches, that uh, there would be an emphasis on God is the healer and it's Satan, the one who destroys, that God is the giver of life and Satan is the murderer. And I appreciate a lot of that theology. Uh, I believe that God in his nature is, is a healer and a life giver. 
and that judgment comes not because God is vindictive, but God judges to punish sin and to deal with iniquity and to demonstrate his righteousness. But let's start here from the perspective of Job, even though it was Satan who did what he did. From the perspective of Job, he didn't know that Satan existed. That's the first thing. The second thing is he uttered words of great faith that the Lord gave and the Lord took away. And the third thing is that not only did he utter words of great faith, not only did he not know about the devil, but God gave permission to Satan to do these things. So, yes, it is not in God's nature to smite and attack an innocent person like Job, whom God commended for his righteousness. So it was Satan who did that dirty work. But Job fully understood that the one who was ultimately responsible was God. And that therefore his words saying the Lord gave and the Lord took away were 100% accurate and right and therefore commended by God. In the next chapter, God commends Job for speaking those things. Now, here's where you could have a valid discussion. You could say, should believers say that today when anything goes wrong? In other words, let's say a guy gets depressed, gets drunk, a believer, right? Gets depressed, gets drunk, gets into a car accident, totals his car, and and God forbid he hits another car and someone is killed. Would it be right for him to say, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Well, no. I mean, God didn't do that. He did that, and he's responsible for it. Or if I... I open the door to the enemy, or I'm not going to say me. I don't want to put this on me. So let's say so, some person, a married believer, right, opens the door to the enemy. He starts playing around with pornography. He starts getting involved in these online relationships. His wife ends up divorcing him. And he says, well, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. No, I wouldn't say that in that context. Okay. So I think there has to be a right context for it. But ultimately, if it's an expression of faith that we honor God as the God of all and that ultimately we're going to worship him no matter what, that's the key thing for us. No matter what happens, I'm going to worship God as good. Even if I don't know why this happened, was it an attack from the devil? Was it something, a blind spot in my own life? Is it God refining me? I don't know why this happened, but I'm going to worship God that, Lord, you're good. I worship you. I praise you no matter what that would be a, a good contemporary application of Job's spirit and Job's faith. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Sure thing. And um, hopefully uh, when my Job commentary comes out, that'll be a blessing to you and many others as well. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Indiana. Rebecca, welcome to the Line of Fire. Well, thank you. Um, my question is um, from Exodus 3, where um, <clears throat> Moses asks, um, what should I tell them as far as who is, who is uh, speaking, you know, who is um, uh, talking to me? And he said, I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had in apologetics, uh, um, some from the Jewish faith say that we are getting this all wrong, that it doesn't say I am who I am. It says I will be who I will be. And I was hoping you could clear that up for me. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. So first thing is the translation, I am that I am, or I am who I am, is, is commonly found among Jewish scholars as well. 
And the the Hebrew, if it was modern Hebrew, ayeh, asher, ayeh, that would mean I will be what I will be or I will be who I will be. Uh, but okay. in biblical Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, it could just as well mean I am that I am. It could mean I am who I will be. It could mean I will be who I am. It's it's a very uh, rich and yet mysterious saying that could be interpreted in different ways. Now that being said, when you sometimes you just have ehiyat by itself, the the first word by itself, and that's normally translated as I am. In context, though, God is revealing His nature and what He will do for Israel as well. So it is a statement of who He is. And it is a statement of what he will do. But if I was translating it, I would translate it as someone with Hebrew scholarship and a Jew. I am who I am. With the implication, though, I will do what I promise. All right. Thank you for the call. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. Uh, Earlier in the week, I interviewed the celebrity publicist who interviewed Lauren Daigle and asked her about homosexuality, Christian, contemporary Christian music artist Lauren Daigle, and we dialogued about the authority of scripture and how we know the Bible is the word of God. We had some differences there. So the last segment of that interview, which was on Wednesday's show, I did a short teaching, 11, 12 minutes long on, on how we got our books of the Bible, why we believe that the Bible is truly God's authoritative word. So we have that video now, just that last segment as a standalone video, you can watch it on the AskDrBrown.org website on our digital library. Who decided what books are in the Bible? I also highly recommend to you our show yesterday where I interviewed Oxford professor Spencer Clavin on his Isaiah translation and translating the Bible. Some great resources we have for you on video. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Indiana. Vershawn, welcome to The Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. God bless you. How's it going? God bless you. Um, I just had a question uh, and then a comment. Uh, Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 8, mm-hmm. about the woman um, anointing Jesus' body. Yep. Um, and I'm just, right now, I'm currently just learning how to read the Bible in context with good hermeneutics and all of that. And uh, yeah. I just wanted to know, after you answer this question, if you can refer to me to start on that uh, mm-hmm. journey of reading the Bible in context. But anyways, um, uh, Jesus says that the wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, uh, what the woman has done to him will also be told in memory of her. So what is that? Uh, what is the context of that? Uh, obviously, it's not like, um, you know, somebody goes and preach the gospel and they don't mention her, then they're not following Jesus' words. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. How do, yeah how so it's, it's that, even, you know? it's even more simple. It's even more simple than you're thinking. It's, it's included in the gospels. The gospels okay. tell the story. So when anyone's reading the gospel of Mark or when they're reading Matthew, where you know, they're reading Luke there, they everybody's going to read this story. 
you know, this woman, this obscure woman that you never would have known her name and she'd be lost to history and she does this very sacrificial thing for Jesus uh, and, and very generous thing for Jesus. That's not part of the gospel account. So the fact that, that you just read it now, the fact that we're talking about it on the radio, the fact that uh, every New Testament printed around the world has that account in it, the fact that these stories circulated in the gospels from early in church history is exactly what Jesus said. It's, wow. uh, it's, it's part of the story. So it doesn't mean whenever you get up and preach the gospel, you have to say, oh, and by the way, there was this woman. It just means yeah, it's, yeah, because that's, it's what, part of, that's where my mind goes with that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. It's like, oh my goodness. Now, so remember, really? you're reading you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you're reading the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. So you're you're reading the Gospel. So wherever this Gospel is preached, you're reading it there. Her story is told. Uh, Version. There's there's a book that's been a classic book for for many years uh, called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. There are two, two authors, uh, D.K. Stewart and Gordon Fee. And it's, it's, it's a, a book that anyone can read, but it's a serious book. So check that out. Uh, there may be newer books that are even better, but that's been a classic for many years, been updated several times. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. All right, check that out. I think you'll find it very helpful. If any discussion is a little dense, just move past that to others that seem more applicable. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to North Carolina. Joshua, welcome to The Line of Fire. Hey, how you doing, Dr. Brown? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, my question was about the wrath of God and just having a, a pure, just kind of how you think people could have a pure understanding of that because you know um, in our world we see anger and and a lot of us have grown up with angry dads right. or angry people in our life and and so what is a pure understanding of the wrath of god yes uh, thank you for asking about that because it's not something we often think about and yet scripture speaks often of wrath in fact oh in the early 90s i did a study of of Every time God said, I will pour out in the Bible, and you think, I'll pour out my spirit, I'll pour out my blessing, I'll pour out my rain, the majority were, I'll pour out my wrath. So the first thing we have to do is recognize this is a perfect expression of a perfect God. It is a perfectly holy expression, a perfectly good expression, an expression that rightly understood should draw worship and adoration from God's people, even in the midst of trembling, that it is just as much who God is as his love. In fact, sometimes it is his love that inspires his wrath. Our problem is that we're not perfect. Our problem is that our anger can be mixed with hostility, with jealousy, with being short-tempered, with being vengeful in a carnal way, whereas God's justice and God's wrath is perfect. So, Let's look at it first in a, in a non-spiritual, non-personal way, all right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say that you had termites devouring <clears throat> a hospital that had just been built somewhere, all right? So what the termites are doing is just pure evil in that respect. I mean, they're just doing what they do. So when someone comes and exterminates them, they're doing mm-hmm. a good thing, all right? Now let's put mm-hmm. it over to the human body. That, that there is a cancer spreading through that body and there's something that's going to be 
put into that body that's going to drive out the cancer and destroy it to bring health. Right? In the same way, God's wrath is poured out on that which is destructive, that which is ugly. And what boggles my mind, the more I look at human sin, is, is that God doesn't pour out his wrath even more quickly. I was writing a chapter for a book to come out next year, and in this chapter, I was dealing with the plague of pornography, and then I mentioned human trafficking, and then I mentioned children sold into sex trafficking. And according to this one website I was on, it said that this happens to about 17,000 children a year in America, or 46 a day. And if you think like in the Midwest, your average class size could be 23 students in a class, that's, that's two classes wiped out a day. And then most of them are not sold into forced labor, but into sex slavery. And, and then reading about the perversions of child porn and violent porn and children as young as three. And I'm thinking, how, how could God even let us breathe another breath? How could mm-hmm. God not just pour his wrath on the whole human race because there's so much corruption in the world? So you realize that, that God is slow to anger and great in mercy. And as some have observed, if he was great, great in anger and slow to mercy, we'd all be destroyed. So I look at it as the absolute perfection of God and his holy love being poured out on sinful people and a sinful earth. And it is ultimately for the good of the human race and for the glory of God. It is destruction for the wicked and those who refuse to repent. But for others, it is an incentive to repent, a recognition of the ugliness of sin. It's worse than cancer. It's worse than termites in that respect. In in every way, deserves to be purged out. And that's why in the book of Revelation, in the 16th chapter, you have the wrath of God being poured out from heaven with judgments on the earth. And, And I think we've gotten to a point where we've forgotten that judgment is part of justice and that it's good. Uh, Nancy and I were talking some time back and we were talking about, <clears throat> say, the time of the flood or the conquest of Canaan. What if the population was like ISIS? What if they were doing those types of murderous, horrific things? And, and Joshua, you know, yeah, so Revelation 16, looking at the text, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of God's wrath. That comes from God's heavenly presence. So let's say that there were ISIS terrorists who were about to burn a group of Christian school children alive and suddenly lightning came from heaven and wiped that all out, wiped them out. Uh, and the children, you know, were, were, were set free. We would all praise God if we were standing there watching from a distance or if our hands were tied and we were next, we would praise God and say, <clears throat> righteous and true are your judgments. I think Joshua, in that respect, uh, reading through the book of Revelation on our knees, regardless of how we interpret it, past, present, future, all of the above, uh, that that would be a real eye-opening, life-changing experience. Hey, thank you for the question, sir. 866-34-TRUTH. Um, all right, tell you what, let's see. Uh, James in Phoenix, then Bob in Tennessee, Dawn in Concord, Nathaniel in Oregon. Oregon, excuse me, Oregon. Don't want to mispronounce your state there. Uh, We'll be getting to you in that order. But since we've just got a minute before the break, let me say something that may be very surprising. We leave for Israel 
in six weeks, February 1st through 10th. We leave for Israel in six weeks, really the trip of a lifetime called Holy Fire in the Holy Land with not only an amazing tour by day, but special meetings with me. We'll be together in one capacity or another every single night of the tour. Uh, what's surprising is not we're leaving in six weeks, but we've opened things up and there's still room. So you've, you've got to sign up and pay in full today, all right? And once you see the whole package and the hotels you stay at and everything and the quality of the tour, it's, it's, it's a great package. But maybe you've got a loved one that wants to send you as a holiday gift or something, you've been, you know, anniversary you've been planning for years and years. So there's still time to register. My team reminded me, Dr. Brown, tell the folks there's still time. So you got to do it now, though, because we leave in six weeks. So askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Right on the homepage, you'll see a banner come up for Israel, Holy Fire in the Holy Land. Click on it. I'd love to see you there. Oh, we'll be doing radio broadcasts from there as well some of the nights, God willing. Together. Yeah. All right. Right back with your questions. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers, and I'm going straight to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. Starting in Phoenix with James. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call again. You're Um, welcome. I had a I had a question. I was reading your book uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish Objections. I forget what volume it was, but it was regarding uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Yep. And I, I, I think you were saying something about, you know, there's other Masoretic texts that translated as they will look to him to whom they have pierced. And then, you know, that's different from the Masoretic text that we have right now. I don't know, if, was I understanding that correctly when you said that in your book? Yeah, so, so Zechariah 12, 10, the, it's not Masoretic text translating differently, but having a different Hebrew text. So the, the, the Hebrew is, so God says, I'll pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on the, on the house of David and the heavens of, of Jerusalem. But he beat to a lie to share Dekaru, v'saf do alav. So it, it says they will look to me, whom they've pierced, but then they will mourn for him, v'saf do alav. So a lie to me, a love to him. So uh, if the the first text said, v'hibitu alav, and they will look to him whom they've pierced and mourn for him, then that would read more naturally. Or it could be God saying, they'll look to me whom they've pierced, speaking of the son, and will mourn for him. Then it just shifts from first person to third. And that can happen in Hebrew. You can make that, that shift. You know, some of the texts go from first person to third person and, and et cetera. But yeah, there are some manuscripts. Again, it's, you've got thousands of manuscripts and it's a small minority, but there are some uh, Hebrew manuscripts that read a love to him as opposed to a lie to me. So uh, oh. I'm assuming that would have been in volume three of answering Jewish objections to Jesus where I treat Zechariah twelve ten as part of the Messianic prophecy, so it's yeah, just a yeah, very correct. very minor difference in in the Hebrew text, and and often you have those kind of variants with a vav and a yud, small letters that that can be confused or an addition or a subtraction. You have it a lot in the marginal readings in the Book of Proverbs, 
for example, in the Masoretic text, uh, that you have these different readings with these same letters. So it, it could happen there. Uh, either either reading works fine. You know, the God saying they'll look to me whom they've pierced and mourned for him focusing on the sun, or they'll look to, to him whom they pierced and mourned for him, which is grammatically okay. smoother, but has less textual support in Hebrew. Okay. Okay, but real quick on the same, just on the same subject, we're dealing with, you know, how you said there's other manuscripts that say that. How, where, yeah, is there? How do you get access to these kind of manuscripts? I see, like now, the Dead Sea Scrolls is, you know, is great. Um, you can get access to yeah, those so, online so, things now. So, okay, one thing you can do is always look in the footnotes to your translation. So, if you're reading a modern translation, it might tell you different manuscripts say certain things. That's one thing. You're you're not going to get the actual collection of Masoretic manuscripts. You know, you have to go to some academic library to do that, and then you'd have to be looking through thousands to find what you're looking for. What what uh. biblical scholars would use is a, a, an edition of the Bible of the Hebrew Bible called Biblia Hebraica. It's come out in numerous editions. There's a new edition coming out now, and in Biblia Hebraica, it has these footnotes. It uses a, a manuscript uh, that was housed in a Russian library, Leningrad manuscript, uh, that, that is famous from there. And it, is, it, is, um, it has notes that the editors put together where they'll say, okay, the Septuagint reads this, or the Dead Sea Scrolls read this, or several Mas- Masoretic manuscripts see this. So just at the, you just glance down. I mean, I've got one sitting just out of my reach here. And you just glance down at, at the bottom of the text. In fact, we're going to do something here. Uh, I normally, no, nah, no, nah, tell you what, we're, we're going to, rather than have someone crawl on their knees and try to hand something to me, uh, just during the break, I'll take a look. But, but that's where you find it. Now, here's, here's one other place to go, okay? Uh, if you go, uh, just type in N-E-T Bible, N-E-T, all right? Uh, you'll find N-E-T Bible.org, all right? And if, if you go there, uh, say to, so, so you look for Zechariah 1210, I'll just type it in here. Uh, this, what's nice about this is it has tens of thousands of translation notes, okay? And it'll get into all kinds of things in depth. So uh, why it's translated a certain way, why certain words were used. Uh, it's, it's sometimes going to be technical and you'll have to have a certain uh, understanding there. But that is the simplest resource uh, for someone to use online that's free, N-E-T, it's New English Translation, N-E-T Bible.org. Uh, and then you just look at the, uh, the notes on the side. So, um, yeah, here we are, uh, just looking at it on the screen here. And then if I'm looking at verse uh, 10, some of the, the relevant notes, uh, T-N is a translator note. Uh, so you, you'll have that in, in depth there. There's a lengthy note to this very subject. So that's a good place to go. You'll find it very helpful. All right, James, thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Bob in Tennessee. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you, Michael. I was listening to one of my favorite uh, shows yesterday, and the, the, the guest on there, someone had called in and uh, and said something about they were reading in Revelation at the end, I think it's chapter 21, there would be no night in heaven, either heaven or the New Jerusalem. And 
I don't know whether there's a difference in that. Maybe you could elaborate on that at the end of your answer to my question. But he was saying that, oh, no, yeah, there's there's definitely going to be night. Uh, even though Revelation says there won't be any night, that God will illuminate it. He says, oh, yeah, there's night. Uh, heaven will be kind of like uh, the Garden of Eden, but an enhanced version. And he said there definitely would be night, and there would be the sun, and it says that there's no need for the sun. And also, uh, what was the other thing he brought up? Uh, yeah, I, I guess it was the fact that there wouldn't, it would always be daylight. There wouldn't be any night. And I, I'm thinking, is that a liberal, I know that this is not salvific or anything, but is that not a liberal take on something that's pretty plain? Yeah, it's, it's pretty plain to me, Bob, that, uh, okay, let's let's say that we can debate is it you know a literal city with literal dimensions? Is it giving us a spiritual picture? We could debate that, but what is what we are told, and this is the eternal city. This is the the new Jerusalem coming down onto the earth, so that it's not that we go to heaven forever, but God's heavenly presence and heavenly city comes down on the earth. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and uh, righteousness dwells there. Second Peter three. There's no more sin. There's no more devil. There's no more temptation. The only ones in there are, are the righteous, the redeemed. And, and yeah, it does say in Revelation 22, there's, there's not going to be any need for the sun, uh, that the, the Lord himself is going to be the light. Verse 5 of Revelation 22, night shall be so more, be no more, and people will have no need for lamplight or sunlight for Adonai, Elohim, the Lord God will shine on them, and they shall reign forever and ever. So I don't know where he'd be getting information contrary to this, that in the eternal city, that there would be day and night, that the eternal city, there would be darkness, that in in God's eternal city, where we'll be with him forever and ever and ever, that uh, doesn't even say there's going to be sleep for that matter, right? You know, that's just something that we're used to in this world. So I, I see nothing in scripture that would support what he's saying. Yeah, he, he said this. He said the, the deal about the night was like a Hebrew idiom that they were just, he was just saying, uh, or the, the verse is just saying that, uh, you know, the Jews thought that nighttime brought bad things because bad things happen at night, that it wasn't to be taken literal. And this is where you get in trouble. You, I think the term is isogesis, where you read things into the text that aren't there. Now, that's the take I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm all for recognizing the spiritual dimensions of darkness, of night. I'm all for understanding the spiritual dimensions of the sea, which stands for chaos, which also tells us that it won't be in the New Jerusalem. But I also believe that it won't be in the New Jerusalem. In other words, initially, uh, God, God himself is light. So the mystery is, why is there any darkness in the universe? Why was there darkness in Genesis 1? Why did God have to say, let there be light? But in the final redeemed world, no, it's, it's light only. It's day only. So, yeah, why the person said this? I don't know. Were they trying to be really sophisticated? Did they find some other scripture that supported it? But I see nothing whatsoever to support that. I'm totally with you on that, Bob. I I wonder why the person would say it. I'd be very curious. You're right. It's not salvific, but it does does make you wonder. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, we go over to Concord, North Carolina. Dawn, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, thank you, Dr. Brown. You're um, welcome. I have a question about the Holy Spirit. Um I've always been taught that at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit, you know, came on the disciples. And then I'm reading in John uh, chapter 20, verse 22, 
And it says that Jesus breathed on the disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. So can you like clear that up? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and that's a, a, a common question and a very good question. We know that the Holy Spirit was present among believers before that time. We know that the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets and the Holy Spirit led the people of Israel. So the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament. And yet, Joel 2.28 and following speaks of an outpouring that's going to come on all flesh. And significantly in John 7.39, when Jesus talks about rivers of living water will flow from our bellies, uh, it says he spoke this of the Holy Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So certainly it has to be post-resurrection, which the account in John is. And you could read it one of two ways. One would be that he does say to them, receive the Spirit, and he breathes on them, and it happens right then, and they are now indwelt by the Spirit. And then at Pentecost, there's an outpouring, and they are endued with power. They are clothed with power. So that would be one way of reading it. Just like the moment you're born again, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but many believe you need to have a a subsequent external endowment. So that's one way to read it. They received the Spirit internally then, and then they were empowered by the Spirit in Acts. The other way to read it is that Jesus was speaking prophetically, breathed on them, received the Spirit, and just a few days later at Pentecost, they received the Spirit. Either of those two make good sense to me, and either of those two are acceptable. Does that make sense? Yes. And so does that mean when you're born, you have the Holy Spirit and then... No, born again. Yeah, the moment you're born again, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But I believe that there is a subsequent empowering of the Spirit, endowment of the Spirit that we should pray for as believers. All right. Thank you. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the line of fire, 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. I wanted to get into this yesterday, but didn't have time on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. But just another reminder of the evil of Hamas Hamas, the terrorist organization. You say, why do any Palestinians follow them? Well, on the one hand, they do a lot of humanitarian work. So they have the humanitarian wing that supports and helps the people. And then those Palestinians who feel beaten down and oppressed and, well, the Hamas is fighting against our enemies, the Israelis. Let's, Let's recognize, though, how evil Hamas is. So it was on Sunday, a Hamas terrorist shot seven Israelis. And this is in cold blood, including a father, a mother, and baby in the womb. She was 30 weeks pregnant. Uh, He did not receive life-threatening injuries. The mother was shot in the stomach, brought to the hospital, bleeding heavily. The baby delivered prematurely, so at, at 30 weeks, The mother has survived. The father has survived. The baby passed away this week after valiant efforts from the Israeli doctors 
and has been buried. So it's it's a poignantly tragic scene. My friend Rabbi Shmuley seen some of his interaction with family because the father of the daughter is a longtime friend of his. And Hamas has celebrated the act and called it heroic, praised the murderer and called the act heroic. So you you, you slaughter a baby in the womb in cold blood, trying to kill the mother, trying to kill the father, at least succeed in killing the baby. This is heroic. That's the evil of Hamas. The evil of the UN is that they would not agree together to condemn Hamas. That's reality, friends. Hopefully I'm going to write about that over the weekend. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, we go to Nathaniel in Oregon. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, how are you doing today? Doing well. You don't have me on speakerphone, Uh, do you? uh, No, I have my headphones on. Let me take them off. All right, all right. We'll wait for you. And we'll, we won't have better? dinner. A uh, little bit. Yeah, but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, um, yeah. I was just curious on go. your uh, your view on um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Because I know in uh, Romans uh, 8.29, it talks a little bit about pre- predestination. But I know that um, people ultimately have free will. And so I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. Sure. So, uh, of course, I've had lots of discussion and debate about this, Nathaniel. I'm not a Calvinist basher. I was a Calvinist myself from 77 to 82 and appreciate the Calvinistic emphasis on the sovereignty of God and us being accountable to God rather than God being accountable to us. But, of course, I do differ with Calvinist interpretation of Scripture, including the passage that you just mentioned. And what I'd encourage you to do, Nathaniel, is go to my website, askdrbrown.org. Go there, askdrbrown.org, and type in Calvinism. You'll see short statements or, or just type in Calvin. So you get Calvin, Calvinist, Calvinism. Why I'm not a Calvinist, just a short video about that. But what I really recommend is that you watch the debates that I've had with Calvinists. So watch my debate with Dr. James White on our website, sdrbrown.org. So just type in Brown, White, and you'll get it. Uh, we've done a few, but there is, there is a good two-hour one we did at Southern Evangelical Seminary. But type in Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. I think it's two T's, two N's. Bruce Bennett, Pastor Bruce Bennett, he and I did a debate on Calvinism. So those you can watch, you can hear the Calvinist side, you can hear my side, and get the full perspective. But you could, you could understand predestination as before the foundation of the world, God says, Nathaniel, you're saved, and uh, Joe, you're lost, and that's just what happens. So God predestines your life for that outcome. Or you could understand predestination as the work that God does for all of his people in Christ, that this is the starting point, this is the end point, you could look at it that, uh, for example, it's it's a boat that's going to take you across the ocean, but someone can jump off the boat. This is simply well, you start here and you end here by God's plan. There, there are different ways to read it that are all faithful to the to the Greek or the Hebrew and honoring of the text. But go to my website, sdrbrown.org, type in Calvin. You, you could see my statements on that, some radio shows I've done on it. And then best thing, 
Watch the debates with Dr. White, with Pastor Bennett. And then this way you can hear both sides present it. Arguments, see what arguments seem stronger or weaker, and come to your own conclusions before the Lord. Yeah, so there, um, thank you, sir. I'm just looking. Uh, there's an interview I did with someone that was in Calvinism and had left reflections on the Calvinism debate with James White. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, a, a few others. So you'll, you'll find them there as well as on our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown. Thank you, sir, for the call. Oh, one thing, sometimes Ar- Arminians in reaction to Calvinism could overemphasize man's will as if God is impotent. And sometimes Calvinists in reaction to Arminianism could present God as almost a heartless monster turning us into robots. Either way, they're extremes to be avoided. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jim in Greensboro, North Carolina. Thanks for holding. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Oh, thank you for accepting the call. Dr. Brown, I've always been intrigued by the names that sometimes are given, in particular some of the unusual names, uh, and more so particular the name Naboth, whether or not his parent or his parents uh, yeah. gave him that name, or whether or not as a toddler or a child he acted foolishly and he became known by that name. Yep, so, so there's three options here, okay? You gave us the first two, that the parents name their child Naval, fool. What should we name him? Let's name him fool. So that's, that's highly unlikely, right? So now you come to choice two, which is a great suggestion. That because he acted like a fool, just like, you know, kids get all kinds of nicknames. You know, there was, there was a boxer named Chop Chop, Demetrius Chop Chop Corley. You think Chop Chop, that's because he really punches hard. No, because when he, he liked to chop his food or have big pieces of food. So he got that nickname as a little boy, you know, unrelated to boxing. So you never know where the nicknames come from. So that's the second option, which is a great option. The third option is that the Hebrew word naval can have more than one meaning. Uh, and, and for example, there's, there's a verbal root related to it that has to do with, with, with fading or, or, or uh, becoming weak or something like that. So it's possible that the word had other meanings, but because it was spelled the same way, just like you have the bank of the river and the bank where you put your money, you know, spelled the same way, sound the same, but they're two totally different words with two different meanings. That could be the other thing, that there was a homonym. There's another word pronounced the same way, but with a different meaning. So ironically, they, they called him that. It's like your name is Frank, and you're really Frank. You, you know, you tell the truth as it is. You're Frank, but that's not what Frank means. Or you're Frank because you like to eat Frankfurters. So it's the same thing with the name Jacob that uh, would the parents name him deceiver? No, not likely. Okay, next thing uh, is, was he called that because he was an ankle grabber? Could be, the text indicates that. Or is that a play on words? We'll call him Yaakov and he is grabbing the Akev. He's an ankle grabber. From what we know from other Semitic languages, that root may have meant something like he protects. So it could have been a name like God protects or Yahweh protects, but, that same name Yaakov could also relate to ankle or it could also relate to deceiver. And when he acted deceptively, just like saying, man, you're really Frank or Mike, they call you Mike because you always talk behind the mic. It's the same word, right? When people call me Mike, they're not thinking of a microphone, but then they could joke. It's like, oh, you're called Mike because you're always behind the mic. 
Well, here, it could have been your name is Naval, which had a totally different meaning, a, a perfectly good meaning. Uh, your name is Naval, but you really are a Naval. You really are a fool. That's, that's how these names can well come about, that they have different meanings. We only know one or two of them now. They may have more multiple meanings in biblical days. And that's why you could name your kid, you know, we call you Jim because you're always working out in the gym. You're a gym rat, Jim. But, right, same, same deal there would work. Make sense? God bless. God All right. Bless. God bless. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Do I have time? Oh, I, okay. Let's try to do this really fast. Dan in Richmond, Virginia. Can you ask your question in a matter of seconds? Yes, Isaiah 33, verse 19, your take on it, sir. Okay, 33, 19, and I know the passage there. Okay, uh, all right, so Isaiah 33, it, it's, it's starting with, uh, it's an amazing passage, a very interesting passage, where it talks about who can dwell with the everlasting burnings and things like that, and you think it's talking about hell. No, it's talking about who can live in the presence of God. And it says in verse 15, the ones who live righteously and speak righteously, etc. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king and his beauty. Your mind will meditate on the past terror. Where is the accountant? You'll no longer see the barbarians and people whose speech is difficult to comprehend, who stammer in the language that's not understood. So it's talking about when God comes with his beautiful kingdom and when the righteous are preserved in it, that they're enemies who were known for speaking in foreign languages. The enemies in your midst, you're not going to hear that anymore. You're not going to hear the terror of these oppressive people on the outside anymore because God has judged them and he's now ruling and reigning. And that's why you're going to focus on seeing the king and his beauty. In the end of the chapter, verse 24, no one's going to be sick because the people there have been forgiven of their sin. Back with you on Monday, friends.